Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Last Zebra. I'm your host, Dr. Ugo Ezema. I have with me today Dr. Matt Finn, a cardiologist at Terrebonne General, where I work. And it's a great honor to have you here. Thank you so much for, for coming through. How, yeah, thanks how for doing? having me. Of course, it's a great course. opportunity. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah. Um, so we met at Terrebonne, like I, like I said, and you are a interventional cardiologist that's right how yeah. long have you been doing that so my training process took about 13 years uh, from start to finish and that's after undergrad uh, but I added a few things to that um, I've been out for almost five years now mm. I would say two and a half as an attending in New York at Columbia University um, in Manhattan and then now a year and a half here so maybe a little under five years um, is that where you trained in New York? I did. So I started, uh, I grew up in Destrehan, Louisiana, kind of between Homa where we work yeah, and, yeah. uh, and New Orleans, mm -hmm. um, kind of halfway. I went to grammar school out there and then went to high school in the city here in New Orleans. Uh, then went to university of Texas, LSU med school after that. Um, and then did residency at Hopkins in Baltimore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also did a chief resident year, which was uh, one of the best years of my training. Uh, and then went to Columbia for my uh, interventional training. Mm -hmm. uh, I did general cardiology first. I also got a master's in public health, or a master's in statistics, really, uh, from there, from the School of uh, Biostats there in, at uh, Columbia. And after that, I did an interventional fellowship and a vascular fellowship. You did so both? I did, yep. Wow. Yep. So it did, you know, it was, it was a long, long road, 13 years, I think, t in total of training. But as you've said many times on the podcast so far, it's about the journey, not yeah, about yeah, the destination. Yeah. I wouldn't trade it, you know. That's awesome. I wouldn't trade it. You mentioned uh, Chief Year was some of your favorite year, like yeah. one of your favorite year. Why is that? It was really special. Um, getting to have, uh, getting to work with the interns and the residents, um, you know, and such a critical time in their development. It was mm -hmm. just, it was just a really special situation. And Hopkins, the way the way they structure their residency, I'm a big fan of it. I believe they they really put the interns and residents at the front line, making decisions, challenge them to to be the the face of the the clinical team. Right. Um, and so getting to be a part of that and the just the institution that was that is Hopkins. Right. Was really special for me. You've You've been at some pretty prestigious academic institutions. How do you go from that to, you know, non-academia, that's, a, you know, being the first thing, and then one in rural Louisiana, Homa? So I would say that, you know, it sounds on paper like a really big change, you mm -hmm. know, going from Columbia and Manhattan to, to uh, Homa, Louisiana, which is, you know, moving into the rural part of Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we, we service some very rural places. Yeah. Um, but the quality of care is, is incredibly high. And that's what drew me to, to come back home. I mean, I, I really missed home, missed my family. 
and then coming down to visit and seeing uh, you know the the level of care that was offered at our hospital and in, and in my current group at Cardiovascular Institute of the South, uh, seeing the top notch level of care, it it became really exciting opportunity for me to to come back and help the people of my community. That's awesome. How, how have you always wanted to be a cardiologist? So I was always drawn to the to the heart mm-hmm. and the cardiovascular system from early on. Um, starting in in undergrad, I had the pleasure of working at Ostner uh, as a volunteer, and I worked with my uncle who was an anesthesiologist. I got to shadow him, and he uh, worked a lot of he did the anesthesia for a lot of adult and pediatric heart surgeries. Mm. And I thought the anesthesia was fascinating. And I really thought the whole cardiovascular physiology was incredible. Um, so I was just always drawn to the, to the heart, learning about the heart, thinking about the heart, felt comfortable clinically mm-hmm. dealing with cardiology patients. And then, you know, I didn't know exactly how my career would unfold, but it just continued kind of down that path. And I developed a real passion for it. Um, and so it became a clear choice for me when I was in residency that that's what I wanted to do. Also in residency, I found that I really enjoyed doing procedures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And cardiology does offer, you know, a way to, to be hands-on in patient care. Um, so that was another attractive aspect to it. Is your uncle the only uh, doctor in the family? Yeah, the only doctor in the immediate family. We have several PhDs in mm-hmm. the family, mm-hmm. um, uh, but... He is the the only uh, physician that I can think of off the top of my head. Was there any other thing you entertained? Uh, did you entertain anesthesia, for instance? I did, of course. Yeah, getting to work with him was so, such an incredible experience. Um, also, and uh, as many cardiologists do, entertain pulmonary critical care. I mean, yeah. they they run closely together. Um, you know, the, there's lots of things that interested me interested me over the the period of training, but uh, and even and. And general internal medicine. I love right, being right. A, the chief resident and working on the hospital unit, basically. So, uh, you know, I would have been happy doing a lot of different fields, but uh, cardiology has been a great, great field to go into. And I've, I've absolutely loved it and love it day to day. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, academia, right? So, you, again, going back to, you know, Hopkins, Columbia. And, of course, you mentioned your the, the, the way you speak about the role of a chief resident has a hint of passion in there too. Would you ever go back into academia in that in a role that is for uh, for trainees or training trainees for future cardiologists? So one beautiful thing about our group at, at Cardiovascular Institute to the South is I still look at it as academics. Oh, um, some people call it private academics because we are a private group, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know we do a lot of work publishing, writing. Still, uh, awesome. we we have a fellow that we train. Last year we trained two fellows. And advanced vascular interventions. Well, I didn't know um, that. Yeah, so they don't come to Terrebonne particularly often, and they're yeah. not in the the unit as much. Um, but yeah, so that's a great opportunity uh, to to train at a very high level. Uh, I would do, I am hoping that we can work as a group to expand that training uh, further because it's it's a real passion of mine. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know we had. Uh, well, not we, but you know, I didn't know CIS had. Uh, uh, fellows that came that come through so that's that's a two-year program it's a one-year program and it's added on after the interventional year so you do a general cardiology fellowship then you do a 
interventional coronary year. And then this is an optional additional year focusing on vascular interventions, uh, both arterial and venous that uh, CIS offers. How, how much was it? Because I always think of interventional cardiology as basically vascular. How much, how much more different is the extra fellowship? So I would say that's one real area of variability across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, cardiology, you know, I think could be better on the larger scale at training people on vascular disease. Mm. Um, there's a lot to learn in cardiology fellowship and, and a lot to learn in internal medicine fellowship. And vascular is so, so prevalent, right. you know, um, and I feel like there's an under- uh, focus on it. So having that extra year for me, I felt was needed to be, uh, you know, adequate to treat these patients. I needed to, to focus if I wanted to make that my area of expertise. What, what's, is there an anatomic or uh, specific limitation to the vascular, um, I guess, geography, body geography that you, that you engage in? I imagine the chest, of course, but so there's not, no, uh, I know a lot of cardiologists will just stick primarily to the heart interventional cardiologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also, as the field has developed in recent years, interestingly has interventional cardiology has come a, become a little bit stratified. Um, so for example, Columbia is a really nice example because they have several advanced fellowships mm-hmm. that stratify things out nicely to, to specific areas of focus. Um, that way, people get really, really skilled in their particular area. And you could argue whether or not that's the best way to do things. And there's programs that certainly have a more broader uh, second interventional year. The first yeah. year is kind of kind of broad, mainly coronary intervention focused. And then the second year at, for example, Columbia, where I train, the second year you can choose uh, one of several pathways, one being structural heart, which is TAVR, MitroClips, Watchman yeah, procedures. Yeah. PFOs, um, so those kind of those kind of structural heart procedures. Uh, the second would be vascular, which I chose. Which at Columbia we uh, ran the pulmonary pulmonary embolism response team with with a wide variety of teammates. I wouldn't say we ran it; we were part of it. Right, right, right. Um, uh, so that that collaboration was a wonderful thing to be a part of. And then we also focused on critical limb ischemia, um, you know, wounds. Um, DVTs, claudication, prevention of vascular disease, in addition to just doing coronary interventions. A third pathway that's available is complex coronary interventions, uh, also known as CHIP or complex high-risk indicated procedures. Mm. Um, That involves doing advanced coronary work, a lot of times with the use of mechanical circulatory support for the heart, for example, the impeller device, which we see a lot, yeah. um, or a balloon pump device, um, and also in some circumstances doing comp, uh, chronic total occlusion wow. procedures. So coronaries that have been blocked for a long period of time and opening them. There are a lot of, I think in just the last 10 seconds, I just realized there's so much more uh, subspecialization in cardiology because I think... I always thought of interventional cardiology and electrophysiology. And those are the two main EP and interventional cardiology are the two main ones that 
come to my mind whenever I think about subspecialties in, and of course, heart failure, subspecialties in uh, cardiology. Um, when did that subspecialty interventional and, of course, vascular, when were you aware that that's how deep you wanted to go into this? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. A lot of, and a lot of uh, people within cardiology struggle which path mm -hmm. to go down because mm -hmm. there's so many options. There's also, you know, nuclear specialties such as, uh, you know, stress testing, PET, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. imaging, uh, combining echo, CT, MRI, um, and then heart failure, advanced heart failure, um, and EP. There's so many options. And then, and being a general cardiologist, which includes all those options. Right. Um, so, so trying to find your path within cardiology, it, it can be challenging and a lot of people switch. I did switch. So I was initially planning on being an interventional cardiologist because mm -hmm. I always enjoyed those procedures. I enjoyed, um, the hands-on component of, of helping people. Um, and my initial plan was to do structural heart. Um, you know, but as I moved through, through the years, I found a real passion for vascular disease. Mm -hmm. I love taking care of the, the patients, helping them, uh, both with their pulmonary embolism, with their vascular disease, not to take anything away from structural heart. I think it's absolutely incredible. Right. But I also think it's very saturated at this moment with cardiologists. And I also think that vascular has gotten pushed to the wayside a little bit and that cardiology is not focusing as much on a very, very important part of patient care. So I view it as a real passion of mine to promote vascular care, promote a, awareness of vascular care in both teaching fellows and my patients right. about vascular health. What are some of the what are some of the specific challenges that you have faced with going from a medical school residency uh, fellowship and then these subspecialties? What is if you if you can think of like top two challenges, especially in that that is worthwhile for anyone who's interested, that they should expect and maybe can learn from that from your experience that would benefit them to know, hey, this is required. This is what's going to be required of you uh, to to go down this path. Well, I mean, I think we share a lot of the the same Steps. challenges, yeah. uh, you know, with pulmonary and cardiology and internal medicine in general. It's it's it, it's mission oriented, you mm -hmm. know? So the patient, I always try to put first, it's not about making money. It's not about, uh, you know, volumes. So, and, it, and, and a lot of times it's inconvenient, mm -hmm. you know, it involves working long hours, uh, working holidays and, and the cases can be hard. It can be hard on your body even. So I'm scrubbed into cases sometimes wearing lead to yeah. prevent myself from, getting irradiated from the, the x-ray machine, which we use to do our procedures. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, so I would say it's just a grueling, hard field. But I do it because I want to help people. Same reason you went into to medicine. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I feel like we do that day in, day in, day out. And it's one of the few, I, I mean, it, it's absolutely incredible what we do day in, day out to help people. I think one of my favorite things about, especially having seen your work is, and you brought up pulmonary embolism, PEs, clots that travel to the lung, um, is how transformational in the span of 24 hours, how that patient can feel from, this, from, from the time when they start having this overbearing symptom of shortness of breath, 
that is progressively worsening. And of course, you guys do thrombectomies, so taking that clot out. Um, I'm curious to know because from the time I was in residency to now, which is about seven years, seven or eight years, so much of what the way we talk about care for clots, for instance, has changed. And you've been in practice now for five years or so. What has been, I imagine the field is constantly changing quite rapidly. What's been the biggest change since when you, when you were done with training to now? So I think it's been a total paradigm shift in wow. pulmonary embolism. And I think it's a true success story in medicine because it's been so collaborative you know, across the subspecialties. It's really been a beautiful thing. Everybody working together. Yeah. The politics have largely stayed out of it. Uh, it's been really cool to watch. Um, and it's just focused around making people feel better. And the, the research is now pouring in, um, showing positive effects of, of these procedures. Uh, and, and more to come soon with several randomized trials uh, here in the next year expected mm -hmm. to, to finish enrollment and probably publication in the next two years. Mm -hmm. So it's a really exciting time, pulmonary embolism. And the paradigm's changed from you know, only treating massive PEs or submassive that were transitioning to, to massive, mm -hmm. meaning submassive, meaning, you know, tachycardic, borderline, low blood pressure, um, you know, relative stability, but not totally stable or a massive PE being highly unstable, you know, low blood pressure, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very critical situation. Those are the only ones we were treating by pushing TPA. Mm -hmm. Now to having procedures that we feel very confident in our uh, ability to help these people with a very, very low complication rate from the recent studies. Mm -hmm. Even in massive PE, the complication rates was extremely extremely low in the recent thrombectomy studies. So it's a really exciting time in pulmonary embolism treatment, and I'm so it's something I've become really extremely passionate about. Yeah, I, I, I think PEs always leave, especially when when it happens the way it does happen uh, ever so suddenly, especially inpatient, because we rarely ever get to, to actually be at the beginning of the episode, right? But there's always something, I, I can think of all of my patients who have had PEs inpatient because it's such a, such a big deal, such a big deal and how important it is to diagnose it early. And it, it's, there are a lot of, I know a lot of providers emergency room docs, uh, critical care docs for sure, who th their experience with pulmonary emboli shifts the way they practice in such a way that they don't want to ever, ever miss it again. And so to hear about how the progress about taking care of these patients um, is really, really cool to see. And I've definitely seen it firsthand with where we work. Um, what sort of, what sort of, uh, changes would you make now to how you have have been trained what what's something that you you wish could have been different about how you were trained granted um you, you know you've spoken very highly about your uh your program yeah i had a wonderful experience i mean it was long 13 <laughs> years is probably too long you know so condensing it maybe by a year or two uh, but I, I chose to do extra things. I mm -hmm. chose to add the chief resident year, which I wouldn't trade for the world. I chose to do a, a, a master's in the school of biostatistics, which I also wouldn't trade. Oh, yeah. So uh, those two extra years, you know, added time. But would I trade it? No. Uh, 
you know, we could sit here and debate whether or not cardiology, general cardiology needs to be three years or an interventional or internal medicine needs to be three years. But at the time it felt reasonable, right, you know, right, when right, we were right. going through it. Um, certainly, certainly you're growing so much during that period of time. You're going from graduating med school and having the doctor name, but not being able to really take care of patients right, right. to intern year by the end of intern year. You know, I felt completely transformed as a as a person and mm-hmm. my ability to take care of people. And that was that was still just kind of scratching the surface. Even though I felt like I could take care of a sick person, right. I could I could get them through you know their hospital course, but but I had so much more growing to do. Yeah, I, I think I've always thought of the practice of medicine, and not always, but I think as the more I practice, the more I'm appreciative of the fact that medicine just the way the way it is taught is it's experience based you just got you have to see it agree you have to see it and uh I, one of my previous attendings have told me that the only difference the way he describes it would be the only difference the way he told it to me was the only difference between him and myself was that he's been doing this for much longer and the longer you do it the more you see the more you you engage the more you learn obviously it becomes a very different uh, practice and experience for you. It's a huge part of it. Yeah. Huge, huge part of it. Uh, and the other thing I would say is just, you know, it is arduous, but it helps if you stay mission-based. You got to remember why you went into it. We went we went into it to help people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and people get lost sometimes in, in that process. Like it's so arduous, so long, you know, sometimes you're away from your family and you, you lose you lose that sense of mission, but if you can hold on to that, uh, it really helps get through the training. That's awesome. You you did a master's you mentioned in biostatistics. I have now developed a, a, a it's a newfound passion for biostatistics, and it comes from a place of one of the things I don't like hearing in in, in common jargon is do your research, right? And whenever I hear that. I always think of my retort to that mentally, whether I say it or not, is most people, regardless of uh, education, don't know how to do research and don't know how to interpret data and come to a well-informed conclusion. Um, do you feel that you need to do, if, if, you, if you were to hear someone say, you know, do your research, Knowing how you understand statistics, knowing how you understand data, reading a, a scientific journal, or reading any journal at all with any data output, do you feel that your experience with doing the masters puts you at a, a certain advantage for understanding that, certainly understanding what's going on and coming to your own conclusions as compared to like a layperson? In this case, a layperson being someone that's not initiated in the world of stats. Oh, it certainly elevates the conversation. Right. You know, statistics is has become so so important and in fact it's driving this whole ai generation all mm. that is is advanced statistics yeah. um it's modeling based on you know um you know artificial intelligence and, and machine learning algorithms mm-hmm. which is you know advanced statistical modeling right. so it's been pretty cool to be a little bit into that i mean i i would say you know, as a practicing interventional cardiologist who's also trying to do research, it's hard to to stay up on that. I mean, that's a that would be a full time yeah. job to stay yeah. up on on machine learning. And there's, I have 
some friends at Columbia who are able to do that. And it's, it's so neat to watch them thrive and grow in that way, but it certainly elevates the conversation and, and you read papers differently if you have the, if you have the ability to, to dive into them. And that's one thing I love doing. I actually love, I actually really enjoy Reading. reviewing papers, you know, when I am asked to review because, yeah. and I know people complain about that because one is not compensated. It takes a lot of time, but that's part of the scientific process. Mm-hmm. So I do enjoy trying to lend my time to, to review when I can. What, what are some key things that when you're reviewing a paper, if you were to give someone who, so if someone is listening to this and they're like, well, what, what are three important things when I'm reviewing a paper that, it, that I should take away from it? Oof, okay. That's a tough one. So yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's, it's not particularly tough. I mean, the first thing you had to distill down is what's the question being, being asked. Mm. So it's usually you're looking for, uh, you have a, a treatment, and you have a population, mm-hmm. and then you're looking for an outcome. So you got to identify those three things. Um, so that's the first thing you would do. And and when I'm reviewing a paper, first thing I'm looking for is, are they clearly stating that? Or is it murky? Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised how often that question is is murky. Right, right. Or, or even what kind of trial it is. Is it a randomized controlled trial? It's an observational cohort, prospective, retrospective, meta-analysis. Uh, meta-analysis. You know, it's not always that well defined. So, what kind of study is it, and what are the what are the players? What's the outcome? Um, so that's that's the f- first thing to look mm-hmm. look into. The next thing to look into is um, you know the validity of the trial. Is it is it internally? Valid, meaning are the methods they used, do they seem reasonable to you? Mm. And is it generalizable? That's external validity. Um, so that's that's two major things. And then three is thinking about it, and this is more in external validity as well, but think about it in the broader terms of, of, the, of the study. Do you agree with their overall methods and conclusions, putting it all together? Do, right. you, do you agree with what they're saying and how do you interpret it? How applicable is it? So yeah, that'd that's be all, three, three potential ways yeah, to look yeah, at yeah. it. You, you mentioned uh, artificial intelligence. Um, how do you see that changing the way you practice down the line? I think it really depends. Um, this is a really out there question. I'm not sure I'm re- the right guy to, to answer this because I'm not so up on it. But, uh, you know, it has potential to, real, to really add things to, to medicine in a really positive way. Yeah. Um, and it, and it can really potentially help us as physicians treat more patients, treat more patients effectively. It, I think it can really improve a lot of the day-to-day challenging work that we do, such as documentation. Yeah. It can really help with that. Um, ordering can, I think, I think it has the ability to make our life a lot easier. And I think it also ha- has the ability to improve accuracy. It's a question of how quickly to enroll to enact it. I think we need to have an extremely high standard before we're using it in clinical practice because we can't have errors right, being introduced. Right. Um, so if you get on ChatGPT, you know they're not really using it for clinical purposes right, right. now because they don't. They're not ready. They, they're not ready to go there yet. Uh, I don't know where that stands. Uh, I think they probably have other fish to fry before they want to go there, but. You know, 
when when I think of ways to use ChatGPT, it's always in a clinical sense, and mm-hmm. it's always like, well, I'm not a doctor, consult a doctor. So that's what it, the answer kicks back to you. So so right now, the obvious ways that AI can help us is is very clear to me and clear to many people, but it's, I think it has to be very carefully rolled out. So it's an extremely hard problem. And then comes the next question of how, how do we become obsolete in some ways? Right. Which, which is another interesting problem. I, I, I'm a strong believer in, in clinical minimalism. So in the sense of making the way we practice a lot more efficient and elegant, right? So I think there, there are a lot of waste, uh, actions and products in the way we practice medicine. We, we tend to do kind of a, a, a bunch approach at the beginning. And then when we finally get the answer, if you, if you were to dial back, you see that a lot of the things that we, we did was, didn't really help in, in getting to the answer and to the diagnosis. And of course, a lot of that is dictated by defensive medicine. So trying to cover your bases just for the sake of covering them uh, to avoid litigation and and, and things like that. I th- uh, my hope is that artificial intelligence in medicine kind of helps alleviate one, like you said, some of the scut work, right? So, so much of what we do is um, repetitive and redundant, doing writing notes, uh, extensive notes for, you know, whatever reason. Um, notes are necessary, of course, but sometimes we're not doing notes to serve our colleagues or to serve the pa- uh, the patients in terms of delivering information we're, we're, we're doing it to you know meet requirements for insurance to make sure that you know the the hospital uh, and the work that we do is adequately compensated so i'm looking forward to that version of artificial intelligence that kind of augments and adds yeah it's gonna be yeah and be cool. yeah makes it makes our our work much more patient focused and removes those additional stressors that could make it a little bit of a bearing. And you can also think about from the research perspective, Oh yeah, you know, one of the most painful things to try and do is build a database. Mm. Um, so using natural language processing to build a database for you from the medical record, if it were to be allowed, mm-hmm. um, could be a amazing potential opportunity. I want to, cause, cause then you could, you could, Oh man, the time will take you to actually, get to that data and then interpret, yeah. analyze and interpret that data. And that, that's already here. Companies yeah. are doing that. Yeah. So that would be awesome. I imagine, so, wow, there's probably going to be an exponential increase in, in, and changes in the way we practice if this gets implemented. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'd say that society tends to adopt these things somewhat slowly. Yeah. So I do think that there will be a gradual, a gradual utilization of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's going to just take over the world all at once, but or I hope not. But <laughs> yeah. uh, I think a gradual improvement and, and a shift would be would be interesting and cool to see. On a day to day basis, what what do you look forward to the most? Uh, I would. I think there's a clear answer there. It's it's my patient interactions. Mm. You know, that's why I went into medicine. I do love doing research, but I, the one-on-one individual patient interactions, um, helping the, the people of our community um, is, is why I get out of bed. That's awesome. Do you feel like there are, there are situations where that patient-to-doctor to, to interaction 
is a little bit more challenging than most? And how do you navigate those situations? Yeah, that's always a, a tough, a tough question. There's certainly, you know, times that are challenging, particularly in the ICU, you yeah. know, there's, there's different family members coming in with different motives potentially, or different outlooks on life mm -hmm. and trying to understand everybody's point of view can be very challenging. Um, you know, I just, I just try to keep open-minded and, and just, just try to be there as, as someone to help. I, like I, like I went back to, you know, my mission is to help the patient, help, help the family. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just try to stay focused on that. Um, you know, you know, much better than me from having tons and tons of family meetings in the ICU. Uh, you know, the, the meetings can go different ways, but yeah. I just try to not always take a, mo a like a agenda to yeah. the meeting. I try to, you know, just try to give the family the information, make this decision together the best we can Yeah, in line with the, the patient's views. Yeah. I think certainly the, the idea of, or trying our best to not walk into these situations uh, with preconceived notions. That's so challenging. It's so difficult sometimes, especially because you, you know, before you walk into almost any room, either you've, you've seen something or, you know, you're getting kind of secondhand information reports from the nurses or, you know, whoever has watched an interaction and you may walk in there with uh, preconceived biases that may, that may affect the way you present the information. Um, and how you actually uh, interact with those families, and I think that can be that can be particularly challenging. So I agree, you, trying to just clear your head, clear my head before I walk in, and try to be as open um, and to deliver the, the the data. And every once in a while, I, I, I'm still struggling with this in practice about so when a family asks for specific personal advice or specific personal recommendations, I still struggle with uh, making those decisions. It happens almost every ICU week where I'm challenged to, to give advice on what would I do. Has, I'm sure that has happened to you. How do you navigate that? Because I think that's one of the, one of, that's such a personal and specific question. And it, it, it does, put a certain weight of responsibility beyond what we're normally, because we, we have a, uh, an understood weight and responsibility of being the, the provider and the, the caregiver, the physician for our patients. But when, when the family member or the patient asks you for your specific recommendation, what would you do if you were in my shoe? Yeah, I, I find that that comes up a lot. You know, yeah. you get from the patient or the family, you know, you're the doctor, make the decision. And I, I try to reframe that conversation a little bit. Yes, I am the doctor, but I, I'm here to present the data and try to make a decision together in line with what the patient wants for their health and give them the different options, lay it out and make the decision together. I'm not really in the business of dictating care. And this right. comes up so often right. with procedures because yeah. there's co real complications involved in procedures and we have to go into detail and explain those. And sometimes people would just prefer to deal with the risks of not having the procedure. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I try to lay it out and make a decision together. Even when they, they, they push you to just try to make the decision for them, I try to avoid doing that and come to con 
come to a consensus among the different options. Yeah, uh, procedure is such a great, great example of that because a lot of times the way, and I've, I've caught myself doing this too, the way we're kind of presenting procedures is it, it, it does come off as it, we, we need to do this, we have to do this, and not this, this is our option. And I, now I'm reflecting on how often I, do I actually give the option to do nothing. Uh, which should be a real option for all of our patients, I feel like. But I don't know how many times I could honestly say I've, in earnest, given that option to my patients. Yeah, I mean, frequently it's it's not a good option right. to do nothing. Right. And I feel, you know, as a proceduralist, you know, a lot of times the family, in my experience, the family feels better. Even if you have a bad outcome with the procedure, if it's an emergency situation or an urgent situation, the family feels better knowing that you tried. Yeah. Um, and so I'll explain that part, part too. Like, we don't know how this is going to go. Uh, PE is a great example. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of risk. These patients are very sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't know how this is going to go. We do know that from the recent studies that the, the data shows the complication rates are low. But I, don't, I can't tell you. But I, I do, you know, I do in most cases feel like, you know, patients feel better knowing that we we tried, yeah. tried to make them feel better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think being upfront about that, and especially the one thing I'm learning is to be very comfortable with two things over the last couple of years. It's being comfortable with not knowing why, whether why a patient uh, got worse or why they got better. Sometimes you just you try, you try, you know, you use your skills and your training and your knowledge, but sometimes you just don't come to an answer. And I'm learning to be okay with that. Um, and so I feel like really the way we've been trained, because training in academia, the way it's meant to be is for you to learn from these experiences. It's a why endeavor. And, and until I started practicing, those whys became less important and focusing on the the person, the who then becomes kind of starts to take focus. And that's, that's kind of, that's been my journey, especially since I've become an attending. Um, I think it takes a lot of patience on our part as physicians too. Sometimes you have to pull that out. You know, you have to let things develop a little bit, let the family come around to the decision. Um, And so often we go in with an agenda yeah. You know, so that's, that's what comes back to that. I try to, you know, one is n- not, not have an agenda and to, uh, you know, be patient with the, pa- with, with the, the individual and yeah. allowing them to make their decisions. What's, what, what are some of the more, how much have you changed personally, um, between training and in my set, in my mind, when I think of training, I include medical school, residency, fellowship, um, and all the, you know, multiple sub, sub fellowships. But how much have you changed from that to who you are now since you've been working? In terms of a, in terms of the way you practice or the way you think about practice? Well, I think you change immensely with experience. Um, you just have experience to lean on. Mm-hmm. So it, it's hard to compare myself back to when, you know, I was an intern and I wanted to hide underneath the table <laughs> on my first day. Um, I think just with time, you you get a different outlook and a different um, a different perspective on on your interaction with patients. I I do think, you know, residency gives you 
the unique opportunity to become kind of a mini expert in a lot of things as mm -hmm. you go through and you get really good at certain things when you're focused on them. And so I try to go back to that mindset of when I was a mini expert, when those situations come back, go back, do my research, think about the things I knew that helped me through those scenarios. Um, you know, think about the family meeting techniques that I developed during residency to, uh, you know, the lectures that we had on family meetings that, that helped me in those scenarios. So, uh, you know, there's certain things that I would say I'm, I'm better at now as a clinical cardiologist, mm -hmm. interventional cardiologist. And there's certain things I would say that I was better at as a resident, um, just depends on what you're, you're doing. Cause these, these things, these discussions are so challenging that it takes, you know, it takes real expertise mm -hmm. and data and you have to practice, you know, if you're not, that's why they call it the practice of medicine, mm -hmm. but if you're not practicing it day in, day out, you know, you do a lot more family meetings than me. Right. So, you know, your skill in the family meetings probably better than most interventional cardiologists that are having them, but not a, at the same frequency as a, right. a intensivist. Right. So, or a palliative care doctor, for example. So leaning on the different subspecialties to help you in the scenarios is also important. And you learn to do that more also as you progress through training and through life. Yeah. What would you hope for in the next few years? Like, there's a version of you five years. I always like, I like questions like this because it addresses hope. And if you look back, do you feel like the person you are today is who you thought you would be? So, and then looking forward, who is the person that you think today you will be in five years? Um, I think if I look back and saw where I am now, mm. not to sound arrogant or anything, I would be very happy. That's awesome. I'm, in my, I'm at home in Louisiana near my family. I've achieved, I've gotten to this point in my career. I'm sufficient in cardiology. I have a practice. Uh, I love treating my patients day to day. So I think yeah. I'd be very satisfied. Uh, as for where I'm going, uh, I think continuing my goals that have gotten me to this point, continuing to challenge myself to be excellent procedurally, adopt new, and a lot of this is just the framework of our group at, at yeah. Cardiovascular Institute of the South and the, the mission statement that we have instituted by our, our founding doctor, Dr. Walker, you know, it's, it's quality of care first. Uh, respect for patients, technological superiority, so being being capable with all the technology and doing research. So if, if I can focus on on those things, and a particular passion for me is is research. Right. And as you come in into a new group, into a new area, uh, I think that could be built up more down here. So that's something I'm really excited to to help try to grow. Research. What what are you? Is there anything that you can tell us that you're currently working on that you're you're really excited about? Well, at CIS, through through Dr. Walker and Dr. Fail and our structural heart team, there's there's a lot, a lot of clinical trials. Mm. And when I say that I think there could be more research done, I think just building on what they're doing. I mean, right. they're already doing right. incredible things. Right. So I don't want to take that the wrong way. Uh, I think that like within our own data systems, we could do more. But as far as a clinical trial standpoint, I think we're doing absolutely incredible, incredible research. So participating in that and continuing that is, is very exciting. Um, but 
building up our own data, data research is something that I, I want to keep working. I think I'm going to lost your initial question a little bit, but, um, no, no, no. Yeah. So I, I guess I was asking if there's, if there within research, do you have a particular passion within research for interventional cardiology, vascular? Yeah. Vascular care. Yeah. Um, there's so many great questions out there in vascular care, uh, and pulmonary embolism that still need to be fleshed out. That's one thing that did, did really pull me in uh, to vascular is I felt like there's a lot more work to be done. Mm. Um, and there's been a lot of, a lot of progress in even medications, you know, that we, we don't always talk about right. the PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, the microRNA uh, interfering RNA molecules, um, the, the novel antiplatelets like yeah. low dose uh, yeah. rivaroxaban. So these, these things have been progress. When, you know, and if you'd asked me, you know, 10 years ago, you know, and you're like, Matt, is there a lot we can do with medicines? I would have been like, I don't think there's much more we can do with medicine. You know, we got aspirin, we got Plavix, we got Berlenta, we got um, Prostagrel, we got all these different options and we've made a lot of progress. We got statins, we're doing well with cholesterol and then just all these new medicines that come out and iterate further, it, it changes your perspective a little bit. That cardiovascular disease is the, if, if, if I'm remembering this correctly, is the highest uh, mortality uh, of all the disease processes, right? So I, I like to now, I think preventative and primary prevention is also coming into the forefront and us having a lot more focus on that. It's very challenging in South Louisiana to make a, a cultural shift where that is. Yeah, I was hoping you would bring this up. <laughs> yeah, to make a cultural shift where that is concerned. Um, what What are some ways that you're thinking? And of course, the easy ones are obviously diet, exercise, et cetera. What are some ways in terms of community outreach and that, you know, you guys are doing that we can, you know, probably get together to kind of switch how... And take care of our patients from the very, very beginning and see if we can prevent some of these disease processes in the very, in the very first place. So the easiest low-hanging fruit is smoking. Yeah. I mean, it's just so devastating in our region, the amount of smoking. And it's not like that in other places in the country. I mean, there are places that are, that it, it's, you know, endemic like it is here. But right. for example, in New York, far lower percentage of the population smoke than here. I remember my first day, I think I had 12 patients and nearly all of them smoked and I was shocked. Wow. And I was shocked. And in a clinic day in New York, I would see a full day of patients and not have one smoke. Wow. So the difference is, was alarming to me. And, you know, I think we have to do more we have to do more work in that area. We have to do more outreach, more community programs, get in the schools, just things that people have been doing for years. We just, I think we need to continue doing them. I, th I think we have maybe lost a little bit of steam on some mm -hmm. of these programs or that maybe in our youth that we're focused on because um, other problems have come up, you know, that, that have taken us away from the very simple low-hanging fruit of smoking. Um, the other big problem that's easy to discuss is obesity in our diet. I think we need to eat less and I think we need to eat less meat, mm -hmm. more vegetables, uh, and less fried food. It's very simple. Very, very simple. 
eat less, eat more vegetables, fruits too, but you know, green leafy vegetables. What do you think about the whole, cause you know, there was a, every, every year there's a new fad diet, right? So keto. And then I think I just read about the carnivore diet recently. Um, speaking about diet changes and obviously eating less meat. What do you think about these fad diets that come up that on one hand kind of crash causes crash weight loss, but clearly these things have downstream effects. Yeah. So I'm not a big fan of dieting. Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, lifestyle changes are the way to go to just strive to live a healthy life. Um, try, I always, when I'm looking at a menu at a restaurant, and I'm definitely not perfect. My right. weight fluctuates. I would like to be, you know, maybe 10 pounds less too. Um, and I eat more meat than I want. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when I look at a menu, I'm trying to to make a good decision every time I look at the menu. It's like, I'm going to get fish today or I'm going to try to go meatless today. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm at a restaurant, when I'm at home, I have more control over that. Right. And, I, and I, same thing at the grocery. I try to make good decision. I don't buy high carb junk food. I try to spend more time in the, the fruits and vegetables aisle. Um, and building on that is I understand, especially when you have delicious, amazing food like we have here in, in Southern Louisiana, Lord knows. some of the best in the world, right. how hard this is. I'm not blaming anyone. Right. You know, I understand how hard it is. Um, and I also do think that these, uh, you know, the GLP-1 medication group is a nice um adjunctive medication mm. that can be used and will be used more and more to help people and i've seen very positive effects mm-hmm. so far and the data is starting to come out so i think i think it's going to be an important part of a healthy lifestyle in the future i'm hoping i'm hoping this trend with these medications continues because all the data is looking very positive i've seen you know the recent new england journal reports and such um so it, it's I think it's an exciting time for, for cardiovascular disease in that area. Yeah. Speaking of uh, um, New England Journal of Medicine, just going back to kind of research, do, do you guys do an active like journal club? with? We do, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we have two uh, two big meetings that we, we tend to do within our group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we should probably expand it. Yeah. It would be wonderful to work with the internists and the uh, – the pulmonologist, or really anybody who, who wants to get involved. So I think we need to work on expanding. We have a journal club, and then we also have a uh, a, a cath club that we, we do where we look at angiograms and discuss our cases. And, uh, you know, some of our senior physicians, like Dr. Fail, uh, has been really uh, instrumental in getting that started within our group. So it's 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 pretty neat. It really is cool to have that, that kind of um, a mentorship. That's something that I... I've always appreciated, especially about, you know, you guys' uh, uh, setup. And we have the same with ours. You know, we have some, some great leaders in our, in our, um, in our group, uh, Dr. Lorio and uh, Dr. Bourgeois being the head, the, the, the guys that kind of set the pace for us. Uh, I would love to have a journal club. I think kind of keeping that, because that, that, that's a, a vestige of, you know, medical training that I think most places kind of just drop off uh, after they start practicing, especially in private practice. So I think that's really awesome that you guys do it. How often do y'all do it? Uh, we've been doing it quarterly. Okay. Quarterly. And then, and we try to, we started just doing it at, at our clinic and, uh, you know, and kind of making it informal, but I think we're trying to 
start doing it at restaurants and stuff yeah, and make it a little bit, make it more of an event. So we'll have to do, maybe we do a separate one together, like a, a more general one that yeah. we can learn from each other. Yeah, that'd be uh, awesome. And we could, we could work on doing that together. It'd be I, really yeah, cool. Yeah, I like that. I think that'd be really, really cool. And it kind of forces you to, to stay up to date. And that's important. It's evidence-based medicine is what medicine is supposed to be about. Um, and it also builds relationships, yeah. you know, which I think is just as important as anything else. Being able to, to pick the phone up and call you go and say, oh, well, this is what I'm thinking with this guy. What do you think? Are you okay with this, this route? Right. You know, being able to have those one-on-one conversations really enhance between the doctors really enhance patient care. Absolutely. And if you don't know each other, it's hard that that obstacle of, of just developing the relationships is especially coming in, you know, as a new person, trying to develop those relationships is is a real challenge, and something like this could help. You know, pulmonary and cardiology, where shortness of breath is concerned, we always go back and forth on what's causing it. Is it it's definitely the lungs. <laughs> it's definitely the heart. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I find that our relationship where we work, it, it's not contentious the way it is. I imagine most places, certainly some places where I've trained, um, it's a different kind of relationship with pulmonary and car- pulmonary and cardiology because we our a lot of our symptoms overlap if not 95% of our symptoms overlap and we function in the realm of well I've done I've done my PFTs uh <laughs> it's not the lungs and you know of course you guys come with your with your uh you know we've done the cath it's not the heart um but it's really cool how I think we have a really good collaborative effort where it comes to taking care of our patients and Definitely having that camaraderie absolutely helps and makes that entire process much more seamless, much more elegant and much more efficient. Like I was saying about the way I like to practice, um, at least the way I like to think about my medical practice. And it's interesting. That's the opposite of AI. Yes. It's picking up the phone and calling a person or as we're meeting today, face to face. Uh, So I think we need to, you know, it gets tempting to to lose that in the in the modern you know, epic environment where I can just get on haiku and message someone, uh, picking up the phone or making the face-to-face contact. I think really it, there's something about it that's special and we can't lose that in the, in the coming generations. Is it? And I feel like it's, it's these kind of interactions are getting further, right. further away, right. you know? So I, I think the, the face-to-face, it, you need to make the extra effort, you know? It's and important. I, I, it really benefits patients if you do. What's your uh, What's your non medical hobby? What's your thing? I have a lot of hobbies. A lot of hobbies. Recently, it's been uh, athletic endeavors. Hmm. Um, so I just ran the New York City Marathon. Whoa! Yeah, it didn't go so well. Uh, it was pretty painful. <laughs> you finished? Though? I finished it. Okay. Yeah, so- I finished it. I was kind of limping to the finish and then I had to fly back and work that. So I flew back that night and that plane flight was misery. Mm. I couldn't like, I could, the flight attendants were making fun of me trying to walk to the bathroom cause I like couldn't bend my knees. Um, but that was one of the coolest experiences of my life is if you ever have the opportunity, I highly recommend it. The New York city marathon was just a really special and it's special. A, thing. It's a true marathon and it's how many miles? It's 26, uh, 26, 26 miles. Right. Um, I, I just saw a, uh, not just, but over the past few weeks, probably a couple of months, I saw the, like an infograph about the, the pathway for the New York city marathon Yeah, and watching that like line course through the city of New York made it feel longer than, uh, if you've ever been to New York, uh, 
a few blocks can feel, oh my goodness, can feel like forever. But watching that little red line course through the city as it was showing you how long this marathon was, going across the bridge and it's like, oh man, that's they call this a marathon. This feels like more than a marathon. Yeah, it feels I tell like you, so running long. it felt like more of the, more of a marathon too. The bridges were tough and being down here where it's pretty flat and really had the opportunity to train, train very well. There's that bridge right outside the hospital. And I never ran that thing. <laughs> All I had to do was go outside and just run up and down it before or after work. And I didn't do it. And I paid the that price. Was, that was your I blew up on mile 18, which is where everybody blows up. And there's a lot of, a lot of pain in a lot of people's faces who under train. So I wasn't alone. At least, at least we were in it together. Yeah. Struggling. Uh, but it was a beautiful event and it, it, I even broke into tears a couple of times how the support from the city, awesome. everyone coming out. At one point in Brooklyn, there was a full gospel choir Whoa. on the ch- front front church of the steps. I mean, that, that made me tear up. It was just incredible, the the support for that event from the community. When you say blow up, what do you mean on my lady? Like, you basically, I didn't have any more, like, glucose to make my legs move. Mm. And it was more, this that's what you typically say when you're blowing up. This was more musculoskeletal. Like my IT band was just killing me and every step felt like somebody had a knife and was just like jabbing it into my kneecap. And I was like, oh my God, I have so many miles left. You know, I have eight miles left. Did you ever stop or you, you, you Oh, I walked some. Yeah. I walked some. Yeah. There's, which was my goal was to not walk. So, you know, but at least I finished. Yeah. I think finishing is, uh, Heck of a, have you ever run a marathon before? This is my second. Okay. I ran Philly, which is also amazing, amazing marathon and amazing experience. And I did much better in that one. But, uh, that was also when I was younger. Yeah. And then my other, uh, pursuit is triathlon. So I, I got into triathlon. Uh, I don't know if you know Murray, our Murray Morella, our yeah, nurse yeah, practitioner. Yeah, 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 so he yeah. kind of got me into it. He does H- it? H- him and, uh, my spouse, we do them together. So, um, uh, you know, so he's done, I think three Ironman, full Ironman. So he got me to do a half Ironman and we, uh, we did that. We did Galveston in April of last year and that was really cool. So uh, that the triathlon in this case is swimming, running, and it's swimming, biking, and biking. then running. So kind of from most dangerous to least dangerous and how you can hurt yourself over the course of the race. Cause by the end, it's better to be on your two feet than like in the, you know, water. In the water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How long is each component? I hope I don't screw this up, but for, so I did a 70.3, which is a, a half Ironman. Okay. Um, so it was a mile and quarter swim, I think a 56 mile bike and a half marathon, which is 13 point something. I just, I have no words. I play soccer for an hour. <laughs> well, soccer's, <laughs> on Wednesday night. <laughs> Soccer's damn hard. So Ooh. I'm sure you could do it. It's just uh, a matter of, of training. You yeah. Know? And and Murray helped me a lot. He was kind of, he was not kind of my coach. He was my coach. Yeah, 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 yeah. What what what's training for that like? So like if you're swimming for a mile and a half, are you you know, are you going to the YMCA? And yeah. Re- yeah, so it? I go to the YMCA in Homa. Yeah, it's yeah. It's a great yeah. place to swim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful pool. Um and just grind out some, some laps. Yeah, grind out some laps. Do some flip turns. Did you ever? Were you ever able to finish a full uh, practice, a full like length uh, 
thing in in practice like no so usually you don't try to do a full uh full practice there are mm. sessions that are called brick sessions which are where you pair like a bike and a run okay uh or a swim and a bike um together to get you the feel of of transitioning because one of the hardest things is going from the bike to running mm. uh, it's it's a brutal experience and you can really train your body to overcome that a little right, bit right, so right. doing the the combined workouts helps helps prepare you for the event nice and i would, I would i'm highly mediocre i just want to <laughs> like people ask me like which well what event are you best at i'm like none of them zero of them i just trying to get to the finish line and enjoy myself were you were you a swimmer prior to no, doing this no i was not a swimmer and that was the that's the barrier to entry for most people mm. and you know my spouse is an amazing swimmer and, you know, we couldn't figure out why I couldn't swim. My family was really worried I was going to, you know, like drown in the first one. Oh, first wow. of all, there's a lot of safety nets, you know, there's, there's people out there, but if you're not, comf if you're not comfortable swimming, it's probably not a great idea to do a triathlon because right, you're, right. you're out there, you know, and, uh, you have wetsuits, which, which help, but, uh, you know, I was able to get better at swimming, we, we figured out that I wasn't breathing correctly. It was kind of hilarious. When I would take a stroke, I would freestyle stroke. I'd breathe in and breathe out, out of the water instead of exhaling underwater. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. So you're supposed to exhale most of the time underwater and then turn your head and breathe in. Oh. And I was breathing in and out. So I was basically suffocating myself when I was trying to swim. And we're like, why can I only swim like, you know... 200 yards and i feel totally exhausted now are, are you exhaling through your nose or mouth um i don't know there's probably a correct way to do it but i try to do both because i imagine I, I would be so clumsy at some point i'd probably try to inhale <laughs> while i'm while i'm while my head is face down in the water yeah i mean i think some of it's a little bit natural once you get the feel for it yeah, yeah they yeah. say blow bubbles mm. so i read it in a book actually it was blow bubbles and then i started like literally practicing breathing blowing bubbles underwater and help me get over it and then i was like i can actually do this all day and i have zero concern that i'm gonna drown now i'm not going fast i'm right, super right, slow right, right right but like i could do it all day that's awesome any non-physical hobbies uh i like to read a lot mm. just for fun i also like to listen to audiobooks and podcasts so you're gonna uh, listen to this one yeah well <laughs> I don't know that I love to hear myself talk, so maybe not, but uh, I'll definitely listen to all the other ones. Yeah, yeah. And I already have. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. What's what's the, the last great book you've read? Oof. Hmm. That you'd recommend? And it could be, let's say, last great nonfiction and last great fiction, if you read uh, fiction. Yeah, I read both. I like Going Infinite a lot by uh, Michael Lewis mm -hmm. about uh, Sam Bankman fried Oh. It's been very controversial because people feel like he took a... Like they, he took, took it too easy on him. Mm. So that's a, that's a decent takeaway. Uh, I'll, I'll let you decide. Especially mm. given everything that happened with him now, cause he's, he's still in trial if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So he's been convicted, but they haven't sentenced him yet. That's yeah. my understanding. Um, it does change your perspective on him, but I think, I think reading it, in the light of understanding the controversy is interesting too. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a very, very fascinating book and it actually made me understand the whole, um, uh, 
you know, uh, Bitcoin, uh, blockchain currency a little bit better. Um, I still don't understand. There's well, so much I think most it. people don't. Yeah. But um, it, it did help. I think it, the explanations were good. It is surprising to me how much people were um, enamored. Is that the word? Enamored by him? Because I felt like in the span of one year, that's all everyone was talking about. Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. There's a whole arena. I think Miami Heat Arena was named FTX yeah. Arena. And it's like, where's this thing coming from? It was all the ads were up and come to find out this was what really was going on uh, behind the scenes. I think I'm going to have to go pick it up and add it to my collection here. How about fiction? I was thinking about that. I've been mainly listening to the to nonfiction lately. So I wouldn't say that I've had anything really strike me in the fiction realm, which usually I'm more fiction oriented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can't think of anything off the top of my head that's really struck me recently. Um, I don't know if any, there's always a classics, but I don't know if I've, I myself have had any, um, any fiction either that I've read recently. Most of them have been exactly what we were just talking about. Like, you know, books that someone wrote about, you know, uh, like the biographies have been very fascinating to me. Um, the last really good one that I read and I, was an audio book, uh, Trevor Noah. Oh, I'm obsessed with that. I see it on your wall yeah, over there. Born a Crime. I saw it yeah, walking oh in. Oh my goodness. What a spectacular book. What so book. moving. What a book. Um, I'm with you. What a book. Highly and, recommend it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you listened to the audio book yeah. as well? Yeah. yeah, hearing him read it is is pretty special. It's quite an experience. He's, he's, he's quite an individual. He also has a, a new podcast that came out. I haven't listened to it yet. Um, I think it's What Now is what it is. And uh, and I also saw him this year when he came to visit New Orleans. Really? Yeah, he's so funny. Oh, he's, he's so funny. True I, talent. I, oh, I, I love that he can be um, funny without being uh, egregious about it, right? So it, it's it's very, I think it takes a special talent to to be funny and talk this way. You can either be funny and loud or, you know, funny and quiet. And I, I prefer the funny and quiet kind of comedian. Um, and he, he does such an excellent job, especially navigating so many complex topics without, without ever passing judgment. I don't know, just listen to him talk. It, 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 it gives you the insight that he's given a lot of thought into a lot of stuff that he talks about. Yeah, the book was so moving, what he's been through and everything. It just, it really touched me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like Trevor Noah a lot, a lot. Um, big fan, big fan. Well, thank you so much, man. This thank has been, you. This yeah, has been, it's been uh, really, really fun. cool. Yeah, we should do this again. Anytime, uh, yeah, anytime. Yeah, yeah. I'll hit you up and uh, I'm curious to see what we, we catch up on. We got to get working on that journal club. I'm down. Multidisciplinary journal club. I love that. I think that would be awesome. Like I said, so much of what we do overlaps. So we should definitely do that. Yeah, be great. Yeah, man. Thank you. All right, man. Thank you. All right. Yeah.